Shoplifting, once considered a petty crime, is now a multi-million dollar industry that has forced retail stores and pharmacies to lock up everyday items like toothpaste and shampoo behind plastic. Tomorrow, we'll hear directly from a former shoplifter to understand how he fell into this life of crime. But first, we'll examine the root of the problem tonight to understand exactly how retail theft has become an organized crime ring and who is profiting most from it. This special two-part edition of Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Ramon, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. There is a reason why you have been seeing everyday products, even inexpensive ones, locked behind plastic at your pharmacy or when you go shopping at one of the big name retail stores in New York City. It's because retail theft is skyrocketing, not just here, where the NYPD has reported a 66% increase in retail theft-related complaints since 2019, but all across America. According to the National Retail Federation, retail theft has ballooned into a $94 billion epidemic, one that has forced store closures led to layoffs and cost cities and states millions of dollars in lost tax revenue. But what's really driving this dramatic increase in shoplifting? Are more people being forced to steal just put food on the table, or are organized fencing operations to blame? And what impact have bail reform and the pandemic had on this phenomenon? Here to help answer some of those questions, Stephen Malanga, a senior editor for City Journal and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, who's done a great deal of reporting on this phenomenon. Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Let me start with kind of a bigger picture question, similar to what I just talked about in the introduction. You've done a lot of reporting on this. And one of the things that you have said is, this is not the, the, the old fashioned shoplifting, kids stealing candy from a store. This is far different from that. What is this? Well, about half of it and much of the increase that we've seen in the last five, five years or so, which is almost a doubling of the problem, is what's now known as organized retail theft. And there are a lot of reasons for this. So one reason is that basically with the um, uh, with the, the rise of online selling, online marketplaces like Amazon and so forth, uh, thieves now have ways of disposing of large amounts of uh, of stolen merchandise. And uh, as a result of that, you know, it's not like the old situation where if, if someone stole a bunch of stuff at a store, they drove around in their car and, and tried to sell it out of the back of their car. Yeah. Now... You, you have you have a, an actual way of disposing of this merchandise. And so that's helped to stimulate the problem. When you talk about this, there are different titles that are given to the, the, the folks who are involved in this. You talk about boosters, you talk about fences. Give us an explanation of those terms and how they play out here. 
Well, again, this goes back to the notion of organized. So essentially what you have now is these gangs where, first of all, you do have to have people who go into the stores and take this merchandise. And then when you bring when the merchandise is brought to a, a, a central location, it has to be what they call cleaned, right? Cleaned mean that you take off all of the uh, the retail tags and everything like that. Then it has to be processed and put online by people with that, that kind of technical know-how and sold. And then when the money comes in, because it is illicit funds, that money has to be what's known as laundered. So you're talking about several steps. That's what makes this organized retail theft. So this is not again, you know, a kid stealing some candy from from the in front of the counter, if you will. A lot of people, and I, I'm wondering how you think this enters into this explosive growth of retail theft. If you ask most people on the street, I suspect they'll say to you, "Ah, oh, come on, it's shoplifting. Who who really gets hurt here?" You know, so instead of selling, you know, on 100 pieces of candy, they're going to sell 99 pieces of candy. Yeah, you know, what's the fallacy in that thinking? Well, first of all, I would say that the it's just shoplifting is behind one of the other uh, 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 prompts or motivations for this, which is that uh, in the last uh, 10 years, about half of all states have raised the amount of money by which if you shoplift, you, you can be charged with a fel felony. So now a lot of shoplifting under $1,000 or, or $1,500 is just considered a misdemeanor. And a lot of stores around the country began reporting increases in this kind of theft as those laws were changed. In addition, what happened is we also changed our bail laws because we thought, well, if people are just stealing property, right, we don't want them sitting in jail um, because they can't raise uh, they can't raise bail. As a result of that, though, we now have kind of a lot of repeat offenders. One fellow in New York City in 2021 was arrested 46 times in less than a year for shoplifting. Every time he was arrested, he was brought to the station. He was then let out and he was arrested again. In some cases, he was arrested in the same day when he was let out. He shoplifted again and was arrested. So there's a kind of a perverse incentive, if you will. When you look at it, I'm a, I'm a former prosecutor and a, a former defense attorney, and you look at these scenarios playing out, and essentially it sounds as if, and tell me if this is right, it sounds as if when you talk about dropping down the dollar amounts, so that now you're just talking about misdemeanors, and oftentimes they'll get pled down even lower than that, sometimes ordinance violations, and the notion of bail reform, which says, you know, we're not really looking at you know, how many times you've done stuff, unless you're talking about violent crimes, we're going to let you out. And basically, it sounds like people are now saying, you know, what do I got to lose here? They'll pull me in, I'll pay a fine. But in the meantime, I'm making money off of this. I know I'm not going to go to jail. And I'll just keep my thefts under the, I'll make it $900 rather than $1,000. Is that, you think, the scenario that you've described? Yes. One security expert called this kind of organized retail theft low risk, high reward. And I think that's the situation that we're in. And that's the kind of um, that's the wrong kind of incentive. The other thing to be aware of, and you as an ex prosecutor will certainly understand this, is that when this kind of nonviolent activity accelerates, 
eventually it creates problems, including problems with violence. Yeah, explain and, that. I was going to ask you about that because once again, as I said before, if you ask people on the street, they're going to say, come on, it's just shoplifting. It's 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 a harmless offense. Nobody gets hurt. And, and I suspect if you'd say, ask them that question, they said, no, there's no violence involved in shoplifting. What's the problem? So first of all, we just saw a slight uptick, if you will, in this. But then as people recognized, again, the low risk, you got, first of all, you have these flash mobs that actually run into stores. And, and then you have people coming back several times a day and the store personnel actually know who they are. And so they begin to try to stop them. And all of those things lead to confrontations. We've had three or four security guards around the country who have now been uh, uh, assaulted and killed uh, trying to stop this. In New York City, in, in Times Square, just a couple of months ago, we had a shoplifter who got into a confrontation with a, a, an employee and they got into a fight and the shoplifter died and the and the employee is now arrested. Right. And and charged potentially being held with potentially charged with murder. So uh, so and, and in, on top of that, we've had a number of people right for us, both in New York City and in places like San Francisco, that just as as residents of these cities, when they go into stores now, they feel a heightened sense of um, of dread because they see what's going on around them. And, it, and, and it's a sense of disorder is growing. And that's what scares them. I would suspect that there are a lot of people who have seen videos of these flash mobs busting in. A lot of people are saying, you know what, I'm not going into these stores, which, as you said, and I said in the introduction, it is costing um, millions of dollars. You, in one of your articles, you talked about, I think it was Target and, and a number that they had estimated for their losses. $500 million for the year in retail losses as a result of the increase. And see, see, here's the thing. That's one thing. And we all kind of pay for that. Although, again, that if you go back to the idea that you said it's just shoplifting, a lot of people don't associate prices in stores with losses like that. But that's part of it. But it's getting so bad that we're actually at a, a new stage. And the new stage is stores are actually, retailers are closing stores in certain cities and in certain neighborhoods where this is endemic because they can't stop it. The um, the, the, the head of, uh, of uh, Dwayne Reed stores uh, in New York City talked about how it's almost impossible uh, it, these days to stop shoplifting. They've begun closing stores. Target is closing stores in places, uh, 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 Target, Walmart, uh, Whole Foods in, in places like San Francisco, Baltimore, Chicago. What we're heading back to, which really bothers me, is an era which I reported on years ago because I've been around for quite a while. <laughs> When you when whole neighborhoods and cities lacked basic stores, drugstores and supermarkets, right, we got past that with the kind of revival of cities in the late 90s and the 2000s. And we saw all these retailers coming into these locations. Now they're shutting down in Times Square alone. Two two uh, retail chain uh, drugstore chains have closed. Two of the three that were in Times Square have closed in the last year or so. So we're we're heading back to this 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 situation where we're lacking basic services in some neighborhoods. Once, once again, illustrating the fallacy of this this harmless title. It, it, neighborhoods are losing services. People are losing jobs because of all of this. Uh, Stephen, you touched on this briefly, but let me come back to it again. What's been the impact of the internet on all of this, do you think? 
Oh, well, clearly, uh, clearly it kind of supercharges this kind of what's known as fencing, right? Fencing is how you distribute these um, uh, 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 this merchandise. So so number one, it it allows that through the selling of these online uh, uh, forums and marketplaces. Now, uh, the federal government has passed a law to try to tighten up that kind of selling by demanding more information from people demanding that the you know companies like Amazon, which sponsor these sites, get more information about where this merchandise is coming from and so forth. But in addition to that, what's happened is you've got this situation now where you you can just reach so many buyers, okay? And again, rather than like you know boost even if organized crime in the fifties and sixties they would you know boost a truck somewhere, you know drive it somewhere. If you've seen The Sopranos, you've seen this, right? <laughs> take out the merchandise. We've seen it in many episodes in the yeah, exactly right. But we're now beyond that. So the internet has done that. In addition to that, it's, you'll find this hard to believe, but in social media there are now kind of um forums on you know how how to make money shoplifting you know or what are the best stores to go to or why walmart is easy to shoplift or why this supermarket chain is hard so that so it's it's the information age i guess and that includes all kinds of information yeah another illustration of the fact that the internet is wonderful except when it isn't um (laughs) yeah i got about a minute and a half here um we're seeing some steps being taken locally and even proposals in the federal government to deal with this give me a quick sense of some of those well i think the local steps are what's most important i do think that we have to tighten up bail law so that at some point at some point repeat offenders have to be we have to understand that escalating right creates problems for all of us. I think I think that's number one. The police have become in many places dispirited because they just they they, they arrest people and they just go right back in the street. This is a local problem. The federal government can do certain things. They're not going to fix it. We have to go community by community. We're seeing just real quickly, we're seeing it in Queens uh, seems to be a model program partnership between businesses and law enforcement that, according to the numbers, seems to be working a bit. Uh, yeah, and there are a couple of places where this works. But again, you know, businesses, the businesses, for instance, lobby the federal government for a right. new law. Okay, right. they can do all the lobbying they want, right? They are not law enforcement, and at some point, what they do is they bail. Right. That's what they're doing now. They're bailing yeah. in place. They're just closing the stores. Good evening, and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. As has been the case for many years, New Jersey has the highest property taxes in the nation. And now, concerns over residents leaving New Jersey in search of lower taxes have apparently caused elected officials to pass a new tax relief plan specifically aimed at keeping elderly residents in the state. The plan called Stay NJ aims to cut property taxes in half for most of the state's seniors. The problem? it doesn't take effect until 2026, leaving critics to question if the payouts will ever actually happen. And joining us now to talk about New Jersey's newest property tax credit and more, is Metro Focus contributor and anchor of State of Affairs on WNET and NJPBS, Steve Arabato. Steve, welcome back to the program. Great to see you, Raf. So Steve, let's start. You know, property taxes have been sky high in New Jersey for as long as I can remember. But the specific problem of the elderly 
moving out of New Jersey uh, in search of lower taxes. That seems new to me. But whether it is or it isn't new, and you can tell us, um, how big is that problem? It's real. And Raph, you know Florida uh, better than most. Florida does not have an income tax. Uh, It's anecdotal, but I have lost count of the number of friends, contemporaries of mine, who have left the state to be in Florida for one day more than half the number of the days in the year, which then means you don't pay any income tax. That's a big deal. And so New Jersey is losing a whole range of disproportionately middle and upper income people to other states who have lower taxes or in the case of Florida, no taxes. It's real. Every time I've interviewed Governor Murphy, he argues it's not real. He argues the statistics don't back it up. Anecdotally, Raph, I have to tell you, it feels very real to me. So how is the new law supposed to work? Who's eligible for the tax break and how much uh, are those who are eligible going to be getting? So first, let's be clear. Governor Murphy, when this was proposed, this stay and J property tax rebate, if you will, or tax credit, when it was proposed by uh, the state assembly speaker, Craig Coughlin, Governor Murphy actually said, and you know this, Raf, because you covered it on Metro Focus. Governor Murphy said, no, I'm against this. And Governor Murphy at the time said not only could New Jersey not afford it, not only was it geared toward upper income New Jerseyans, he said, I will get this benefit as a multimillionaire, which Murphy is. He said, I am willing to potentially shut the government down by not signing this budget on the last day of June, right, which is when the Constitution says the budget has to be struck. Then all of a sudden there was a negotiation and it got done. So here's the deal. If you earn um, less than $500,000, you are eligible for this tax credit up to $6,500 in tax credit. That potentially, Raph, since I know I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here, the average property tax bill is $9,500 a year. So if there's a up to a $6,500 tax credit, it potentially cuts property taxes in half for a large number, 90% plus of all New Jerseyans. Then all of a sudden, Governor Murphy was for it. He was signing it. It passed unanimously in the Senate. Virtually everyone voted for it in the Assembly. No one apparently wants to be against a tax cut in an election year. And that's what happened in New Jersey. So, so listen, you know, one of the biggest criticism of Stay and Jay is that it will disproportionately benefit wealthy homeowners. Uh, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a Washington-based uh, nonpartisan research group, for example, called it a, quote, unsustainable tax cut for the 1%. Is that a fair characterization? I think originally, Raf, it would have been. With, I know this just sounds crazy, but once you moved it down to $500,000 or less, it changed a lot because it's not 1%. It's it's a, it's a different number than that. But the reality is this. I, here's what I'm more concerned about. I'm actually more concerned that New Jersey can't afford it. I'm actually more concerned that the federal aid tied to the pandemic is dried up. I'm actually concerned that why are we doing this in the beginning of 2026, RAF? If it's such a good idea, if New Jersey can afford this tax credit give back, why are we not doing it now? We're not doing it now. We're doing it when the next governor takes over, because uh, because not Christie, but Murphy will be gone by then. 
I don't know if the state's going to have the money to do it. And I seriously question whether it's ever really going to become a reality. So that, that's a question. But but maybe but maybe there we have the answer as to why Murphy changed his mind about this bill. <laughs> it's not going to be in effect. Not on my watch, Raft. Not on uh, my watch. But but it, if it is. It, but if it is postponed till the next administration, and I believe the next administration has the prerogative to to follow it or not, I mean, what are the chances that the thing is ever going to be implemented, really? So, Raf, um, again, you and I not big on political prognostication and whoever would have predicted a global pandemic. I'm yeah. going to say this. I think the odds are not in favor of this ever becoming reality, because I do believe New Jersey's fiscal picture is going to change significantly over the next few years. It's going to be a lot tighter. The surplus is not going to be there. The federal money is not going to be there. I'm concerned about income tax and sales tax revenue. And I believe the $1.3 billion, Raph, $1.3 billion it's going to cost to fund this stay New Jersey tax credit give back I believe it's going to be very hard to find that money in January of 2026. Well, you know, this this tax uh, credit is part of the $54.3 billion mm. state budget that was passed, which is 7%, which is a 7% increase from last year's budget and a 45% increase from the first budget Governor Murphy uh, signed into law in 2018. So you must be mistaken. The state must be flush with cash for now and for the foreseeable future. If on this election year they're passing this uh, this generous budget with this generous tax cut, where am I wrong? Are you saying that with a straight face, my partner and friend? <laughs> um, so here's the here's the way I see it. I, I've given Governor Governor Murphy a lot of credit and the legislature for fully funding the public employee pension fund. And without getting deep into the weeds in this, you and I both know, and others who follow government policy well, know that the state public policy, excuse me, the state pension fund is underfunded. It's it's a huge liability. But to Murphy's credit, they paid into it. That's a good thing because it had to be paid. If you don't pay it, the interest rate down the road, too high. However, this give back, this stay New Jersey, stay NJ give back, in my view, is not smart public policy. And the governor was originally correct when he said this is not smart fiscally. Even though changes were made, amendments were made, modifications were made, they negotiated, it's still a mistake. I believe that this budget, bigger than ever, miscalculates the future. It is, I'm, I'm a fiscal conservative when it, when it comes to my own family funds, meaning you got to think worst case scenario. You've got to be conservative. And I don't mean politically. You can't count on all this new money coming in again. It's not coming from the oh. feds anymore. I believe that a mistake was made in increasing this budget to this degree at oh. this time. It was not smart fiscally, politically, maybe, but not fiscally. But all, all that being said, just to be fair, uh, there are some things, for example, as you said, uh, I remember we were doing when we were doing the program. Um, having the the public pensions funded was Big a deal. perennial problem, and that seems to to have been taken seriously. More money for childcare, more money for pre-K, more money, uh, allegedly more money. Sorry for interrupting, Raf. For public schools from the state, even though some school districts are complaining, a lot of good things have been done here, Raf. To be to be fair and clear. Yeah, yeah. So out of this forty fifty four point three billion dollar budget, um, which is very big, we we both agree. Um, 
how much of it would you say is filler and how much would, would, would you say is politically uh, calculated rather than necessary? You know, Raf, uh, as a former state legislator, which you like to remind people, I was there for a good Raf, you're laughing already. I was there in the mid 1980s, 25 years old in the legislature, 27 voted out of office and on the finance committee at the time, the budget and finance committee, one person's pork. One person's fat in the budget is another person's, hey, that's a really good project for my constituents. So, Raf, I am not going to take on the question of fat and pork, because if it's helping someone in their district, their constituents want it. So what's fat, what's pork and what's, hey, really good policy. Yeah. Yeah. So so going back to being unfair. <laughs> hey, we're not being unfair. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But going back to the questioning. Uh, what's sure. been happening. So we have this budget at a time when, as you correctly say, the fiscal future of New Jersey is 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 cloudy. You really don't know at best, uh, probably negative, if not if not cloudy. Um, and we have this tax credit that is expensive, maybe maybe too much geared to the wealthiest New Jersey, maybe not, but certainly probably it's not even going to happen. Um, and and I think the implication is that it's all happening because it's in an election year. Right. Um, you're an expert on the subject of leadership. Uh, so let me ask you, is this good leadership? I think it's um, pragmatic, not leadership, but politics. I think it's pandering, not leadership, but politics. I genuinely do not believe it's honest. I genuinely do not believe, and I respect the Speaker of the House, I respect the Governor tremendously, and this President of the Senate, Senator Scutari, they all were on board on this. For every Republican and Democrat in the Senate unanimously to vote for this, while they're saying, many, particularly Republicans, that we can't afford it, you tell me, Raph, if you vote for something that you think we probably can't afford, but you vote for it anyway for fear that yeah. constituents will say, you didn't vote for a tax cut, is that really good leadership or is it pandering to the lowest common denominator to gain some political points? People can decide for themselves. So when speaking of leadership, um, your new book is Lessons in Leadership 2.0, The Tough Stuff, uh, follow up to your 2016 Lessons in Leadership. Any lessons in your new book for the folks in Trenton? Oh my, I can't. I have no idea why that book is right behind me. I have no <laughs> idea how that got there. <laughs> So so here's the message. There's a chapter in the new book um, on ownership. There's a wonderful book called Extreme Ownership written by two Navy SEALs. There's a chapter on leadership and ownership. And here's what it means. Own your mistakes. Own them quickly. Own them fully. Don't point the finger. Don't scapegoat. Don't blame other people. Take it on and say, it was me. I was responsible for this. Here's what I learned in it. And here's what I will do moving forward. Somehow, Raf, that has become an impossible thing for most government and political officials to do. I think it is the smartest, most appropriate kind of leadership we need. And we need more of it in the White House, the State House, and in every office across this country. Own your actions and your mistakes and stop blaming others. Okay, 30 seconds. What is the one thing you've learned about leadership uh, from since your first book in 2016 that you've included in this new book? Other than all the mistakes I've made? Okay. Yeah. The biggest thing I've learned, uh, particularly around the pandemic, pivot, adapt, evolve. Never assume the status quo is good enough, which is why you and I are doing this interview remotely for public broadcasting, for our team 
um, in the public broadcasting world. We pivoted, we adapted, we evolved. That never changes. The status quo will never, ever be the best option when it comes to leadership.